and you're listening to Pop Could Never Save Us. We're back from our spring break. Spring break! We've been throwing beads into the crowd of scantily dressed teenagers. My name's Holly Boson. I'm here with my friend James Murphy. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Spring break woo, of course. And it's fantastic to be back here to dive into the current pop music and helping our listeners, as ever, stay on top of the curve and remain cool and relevant, as well as learning more about the history of pop music with our other episodes. So, yeah, it's great to be back with you. Well, in this particular case, we're probably going to be teaching people to get very uncool. We're actually being driven towards what most people actually want to listen to, which isn't the same thing as the totemic teenager that music snobs wish young people were. Now, what's the difference between the average listener, the general listener, and what music snobs want the teenage artisan to be? There's many different things. One of the main ones is they want them to have a certain aesthetic of subversion. They have the idea that music is a revolutionary force that will be tearing things up from below and that teenagers are all angry and they hate the system and whatever. Truth is, a lot of teenagers are angry and hate the system. A lot of them couldn't care less. A lot of them are angry and hate the system but don't feel any need to have that in their music. Kids are just people making choices about what they want to listen to based on what is presented to them and um, trying to find a pathway through that which is speaks to their souls. Exactly that. Kids have stuff handed to them and then create stuff that's entirely defined by that, but they're expressing their soul just as urgently as a Lou Reed would have done. The type of people who come up through a lifestyle where there's only the current pop music played at them, they will bleed onto the page and it will, by sheer good fortune and mercury, be the thing that's currently fashionable. In fact, in some ways, it will also shape fashions if you're in the industry for long enough. Mm. But there's nothing wrong with having a creative drive that is commercial sounding. And there's also nothing wrong with having a creative drive that is gentle and uses aesthetics of, I'm going to say it, of feminine emotions rather than traditional masculine aesthetics of being hard and edgy. It is very silly to act like the aesthetics of subversion are necessarily subversion. Out of this stack of songs that we are going to be addressing, the most urgently political song is by an old man. Just as put down to the reference points which has informed it as anything else. In the 2010s, it became apparent that the biggest pop star in the world was going to be a young man who liked to play acoustic guitar with a loop pedal. His down-to-earth charm at that time was seen as a very necessary corrective from the likes of Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and Kesha, all the um, big, over-the-top, bombastic, glittering goddesses. Our charts today give us three, I'm going to say sheeranoids. Sheeranoids. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're going to go from the top down, aren't we? On the official charts this week at number two, not quite kicking off Miracle with Ellie Goulding, which we discussed last time, is Daylight by David Kushner. Oh, I love it and I hate it at the same time. Hiding all of our sins from the daylight, from the daylight, running from the daylight. From the daylight, running from the daylight. A new face. We haven't discussed him yet. His song here 
has all the signifiers of thematic weight and all the marks of quality, which you can ask for in our post Adele, post Sheeranoid, which has a lovely kind of sheerly annoyed feel to that. I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> a sadder baritone George Ezra vocal. This loss is a burden that we both share. Two sinners can atone from a long breath. It's a song about, I think, a bit of romance, perhaps one that comes from infidelity, which makes me think that Krishna should try and write about something that might be a little bit fresher here. Well, I believe he may have actually done that, but carry on. But it might also be a song about a codependent couple who are struggling with addiction. You and I drink the poison from the same vine. But it's lacking in depth on the whole. There's not, I find, the emotional resonance that it's reaching towards. This is a song which, of course, came to us via TikTok. What happened was the text that it allowed people to share their feelings about. From the daylight, running from the daylight. Oh, I love it and I hate it at the same time. It just about works as a song for me because it is fully aware of how to do what it's doing. Yeah, well, this was the song that when I queued up the video on YouTube and I'm using a client that doesn't track me, the suggestions were songs by Coldplay. You know I love you so. Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah, you bleed just to know you're alive. And the morally acceptable, not afraid, biting Eminem clone, NF. I just can't imagine. I was happy Don't know what's around the bend like NF, David Kushner is a Christian, and I believe this song is in fact a Christian song. It's very competently produced. It's based around this weighty, minimalist piano backing. I did really enjoy the production style on the backing vocals in this song. There's a very buzzy sort of saturation at the top end of these vocals which are panned left and right and it creates this feeling of like almost like a synthesizer playing along with him which is a clever twist on the formula if you're going for genuine emotions you're not messing around with a keyboard that's a plastic instrument that was invented in the last oh 60 years the music video is also very horrible in very much the same way that nf's music video are in that it has like a graphic scene of the main character being stoned for his sins by a group of laughing onlookers and it's like get over yourself man please <laughs> but he he is very very young and i guess like when you're that young this kind of dumb stuff is just very cool <laughs> so but yeah the lyrics i agree with you are not very concrete and it is weird that they've been used for an unironic tiktok meme about relationships because they don't describe a positive relationship i did listen carefully to the lyrics and i was thinking maybe this probably isn't about a toxic relationship at all i mean the second verse is actually a prayer it's directed to god deep down with down lord i try try to follow your light that sort of alludes to Libyanka song that we talked about previously, which also had verses that were directed to God. So I've got to wonder, like, are the kids actually that secular? Yeah, I mean, you don't think of the thousands, 
millions of people who go through growing up Christian. And there is a feeling in right-wing and left-wing Christian society that the world is madly secular. It's true that we don't hear an awful lot about God in the mainstream in songs, in passing and maybe with a completely bundled cover of a Leonard Cohen song. Yeah, when do you ever hear gospel on the radio? It's a good point. I couldn't help thinking that maybe it was a song about social media addiction. This is probably just me reading into it considering his background as a social media star, but this idea of it being a, a, a vine that you're both drinking from, that's such a strange mixed metaphor, but it seems to allude to Vine, <laughs> the um, social mm. media app that predated TikTok. This constant desire to be away in the darkness, which doesn't seem to me like it jives with the themes of Christian redemption. There was also one curious thing here. Each of these three Sheeranoid songs that we're going to be discussing all have one scene in a video which seems to like reference a prominent pop cultural image. And in the music video for Daylight, we get the image of David shaking hands with a guy on fire, which was obviously taken from um, the cover of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. Um, mm -hmm. And also was recycled for the cover of the recent Metro Boomin' album. Yeah, I think that there is a sense of wearing somebody else's clothes to feel important. And I think that that's something that's in the music as well. I think it's actually very trenchant of you to say that the addiction that I picked up on within these lyrics might be to do with social media. Because that's something that is just everywhere. You know, the majority of people who are hooked into the culture as a whole. And I don't hear it spoken about anywhere near enough. So I would respect this song more if your interpretation was correct on that. I think it's a really valid one. But at the same time, the reason it resonated with people is not really because of what the lyrics are about. I don't think this is a song that got popular because people were listening to the words. It's the feel, isn't it? Yes. It's completely down to the movement of the chords and the playing. And it feels like a love song. Anyway, David Kushner, off the back of a bunch of his songs going viral, which are worse than this one, got to be the opener for one Lewis Capaldi, returner to the show. Incidentally, at number four in the charts is Lewis Capaldi with Wish You The Best. But oh my love, I want to say I miss the green in your eyes. even has a title that is similar to Wish You Were Here. This whole thing is just turning into a massive great big blob. The pop culture reference in the music video for Wish You The Best, before we even start talking about it, by the way, is Futurama. Oh, Georgia. I think yeah. I may have mentioned it on Twitter or maybe on our group chat that the Lewis Capaldi love song we had, Pointless, could actually have been about a cat. I take a water when she's thirsty She takes me as I'm because it is so desexual. Well, Louis Capaldi was clearly listening to our podcast because the music video for Wish You the Best is about a dog belonging to a guy whose last name is Fry. An incredible piece of art that future our episode is, by the way. With the Louis Capaldi video, it's almost comically manipulative. <laughs> the dog 
Is an old man who dies. Yeah, the old man is a sort of Captain Tom type living in a stereotypical English countryside. And then the dog dies. It's a John Lewis advert. It reminds me of something that George Lucas said when his brilliant wife, Marcia Lucius, said that he was failing to involve the audience's emotions. And he said, that's easy. You just put a gun to the head of a kitten and the audience is involved. And that's what the music video is literally doing to us. Now, the song itself isn't quite that John Lewis emotions by numbers feel something now I'm pressing this particular button for you to do so. But it's very challenging for me to separate Chapaldi's work from this sheer-annoyed stuff. I think it is definitely more specific than anything David Kushner is able to do with his lyrics. David Kushner is just still hanging around with broad cliches about day and darkness and blood on the hands and sin and being down on his knees. We do get a shout-out to Louis Capaldi's Roots in Scotland. With every day that passes by since we've spoken It's like Glasgow gets farther from LA We get the colour of the girl's eyes And we get the specific situation in the song Which is that he's thinking about someone who he kind of wishes he was still in love with But he is actually happy he's moved on But I want you happy where the north is with me and considering the struggles that Louis Capaldi has had as someone with Tourette's syndrome and a bunch of anxiety disorders, struggling with getting incredibly mainstream fame when he was someone who was honestly very much not built for it. And I can't help thinking that the fact that he doesn't appear in this video, uh, sort of like controlling how out there his image is. I'm very sympathetic to him as a person. I came to realise listening to this that one of my big problems with Louis Capaldi's music is he can't modulate his emotions to the thing that he's trying to express in the song. He yeah. delivers most of Wish You The Best in this absolutely raw scrummit of a vocal. Oh, but instead I only wish you the best. But the, the song itself isn't really about that kind of emotional intensity and something that I think a skilled performer probably could have done more to act out. You do get little moments where he goes down into like his own register and puts on a contrived normal person accent in order to indicate that he's shifting in character. Wish I could see it's something I really mean. But it, it doesn't actually seem to indicate any real meaningful shift in the emotion of the song. He just does it because that's what you do when the song goes all quiet. It's all in favour of what the song is supposed to sound like sonically rather than any attempt to communicate the lyric. And I don't think the lyric is that bad. It's fine. It's better than David Kushner was doing. And that was adequate for the task at hand. I really hope that Louis Capaldi can work with a producer who can actually coach a proper acting performance out of him. Because... I'm sure he's got one. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, he is very much singing in that X Factor influence style, the place where you would turn up in an audition, you would sing like Lewis Chapaldi, and you would get straight through to the next round. But it's, of course, it's a performance that requires so much more than technical ability. We've all had that moment, whether it be in a romantic relationship or a friendship, when you turn around and you realise that you've organically drifted apart and both of you are fine with that. So that's something I like about it, actually. It's got a better message. It's got a better and more compelling story 
than Kushner's Daylight, but it's structurally unremarkable and the emotions are phrased extremely blandly. And I think Pointless was a better song than that it was about a cat. Yes. <laughs> Cats are better than dogs. That's the official Pop Can Never Save Us ruling on the age-old debate. <laughs> After a while, hanging around with oldie Ed Sheeran and then Sainsbury's own brand, Ed Sheeran, you start wanting to experience the actual brand name Ed Sheeran. And in a cost of living crisis, that really takes some effort. This is going to sell more copies than literally any other recording on earth. There's going to be stacks of these CDs because it's people who still buy CDs who listen to Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran doesn't need a TikTok trend. Ed Sheeran was able to come by his hit just by being Ed Sheeran. And the name of that hit is Eyes Closed, which is at number six. Dancing with my eyes closed Cause everywhere I look I still see you And time is moving so slow And I don't know what else that I can do So I'll keep dancing with my eyes Now Sheeran has had a rough time and rich guys this took me an embarrassingly long time to learn they go through a lot of the same pain and troubles that the rest of us this song like a lot of Sheeran stuff like I said at the top of the show it comes and is sung directly from his soul it's shaking with vulnerability and it's written about something that's authentic and real it's about the loss of a friend and that seems to the guy he lost seems to be an extremely exceptional man and it's a song that has Sheeran going out and managing his grief. It has heft and it's an honest portrayal of grieving, which is a universal trial that we all go through. The way Sheeran's soul expresses itself because of the musics which formed him and the culture that he came out of, it's a popular and commercial idiom. And that's a huge boon for him and the music industry that sells all those CDs and for those whose ears are perfectly acclimatised to those sounds. But it puts a layer of shop window between me and those sincerely expressed and realised emotions. Ed Sheeran's commercialness is the reason why he's one of the most hated musicians with people who think they're clever. And Absolutely. just before yeah. I did this episode, I was reading a very nasty article by Jason Green in Pitchfork, which came out on May the 5th which calls him hobbitish and accuses him of having plagiarised most of his catalogue, which is something that Ed Sheeran is rightly upset about the accusations of. The oh. songs that he references are referenced in ways that change up the sound and should be well within the boundaries of legality. Referencing um, Marvin Gaye in uh, Thinking Out Loud is actually part of the story of the song because it's about the idea of growing old with this woman and listening to soul records with her that he loves. Take me into your loving arms. It's not the same as plagiarism. It's homage and that is fine and it should be legal. It's really very sad to see people on Twitter who were cheering on the idea of Sheeran losing this court case. He's had multiple plagiarism suits against him, settled one out of court, and he's regretted it ever since, saying that it was an insult to him as a songwriter and it's opened the doors for vultures to start trying to sue him constantly, which was why he started making those declarations that if he lost this lawsuit, he was going to stop making music for good. People are just horrible 
horrible to him for things that there's no reason to criticise him for. Pitchfork was also extremely horrible about the album that this was attached to, Subtract, because they said that Sheeran was bragging about having written some songs on it in 20 minutes. If you are like me, you will know that there are some songs where you do just write them in 20 minutes and they're always the best ones. Mm. The length yeah. of time that it takes to write a song is not to do with your level of laziness. No. No. And Sheeran has been going through it lately. Um, his wife has been in treatment for cancer. The result of it is, it is his strongest work in a long time. It's just that it is incredibly uncool work because it's not pushing the boundaries of anything. There's nothing here that is musically attempting to progress the art. There's nothing teleological. It's very backwards looking. It's very much rooted in the music that Sheeran grew up on, which is all these kind of quality Jules Beatty singer-songwriters and in the middle of it is Ed Sheeran's pop voice. It's a little bit too keening and commercial for my tastes. However, one thing I can absolutely credit him with is that, you know, immediately, as soon as you start listening to Eyes Closed, you realise you're in a completely different universe to those other two songs. It's just like so much higher quality. There's humour in the way that he delivers his vocals. He's aware of how words sound. You can tell he had a background of being a rapper because there's just an awareness of euphony, like what words would actually sound good when he uses them. And it's only me that's in this room um, And moments where he flirts with doing those sort of clever enjambment stuff that his idols like 50 Cent used to do. This month a little bit different, no one is ever ready. When he drops into his natural accent, it's a really satisfying punchline and a genuine moment of emotional catharsis. Everything changed. Nothing's the same Except the truth is now you're gone Life just goes on and even the production is like way better than the production on these other two records. Everyone else is messing around with these soupy car advert pianos. Well, Ed Sheeran, that guitar pluck that opens the song is kind of out of tune. It goes round and you realise it's actually being played in real time, it's not a loop. And then, towards the end of it, you hear this tiny little synthesised note. No, it's which immediately takes you into the world of a pop song. There's a nice kind of sonic pun there created by the timbre of his acoustic guitar and the tropical keys sound that's been all over the mainstream pop charts the last five years. There's also a specificity of place and time here. We get yeah. the obvious allusions to the pandemic, which also give it a kind of universality. It's been a while, my dear, dealing with the cards life dealt. I'm still holding back these tears when my friends are somewhere else. We build things out of what's done before. So to try and nail Sheeran to the wall for using tricks that are the defining ones of our age are so ungenerous when he has tricks like that beautiful sound at the start of the song. It's due to his success, obviously, that he's in the firing line of the incredibly and increasingly acquisitive society and the lawyers and the thieves and the middlemen, they're all out there trying to ensure that the estates are dead men that they line their pockets with are doing vile and human things. And I'm so glad that he's won this round. And yeah, you've talked about the online hate that he gets. I think that the reporting of this issue shows one of the many failures of how news is disseminated in a social media age where a headline 
borderline gets, I'm sure, purposely composed, even by the BBC, our ostensible public service broadcaster, to get clicks and quote retweets and shares, such as having a headline that says, court ruling could mean the end of Sheeran on radio or no new music, and some self-consciously beery and cranky beard I goes, good, small price to pay, and that good laugh is had by few. <laughs> it really minimises just how good this guy is at his work. And the loathing that he gets feels like he's the one that's it's cool to loathe. Yes. And I can understand the reasons why that's happened, because he's got his heart on his sleeve, his music is popular and is not designed to be so, but just suits that kind of thing. And he's good at what he does. He doesn't push those boundaries. He's not interested in pushing those boundaries. That's not what Ed Sheeran's about. And also, there's his looks. I'm sure Jason Green for Pitchfork would prefer a world where ugly people can make music because there's no reason to believe that somebody who's pretty will make better music than someone who has beautiful music in their heart, you know? But even so, he's, he still couldn't yeah. resist calling him hideous. If Ed Sheeran looked like Harry Styles, he would get the kind of veneration that Harry Styles gets. It's literally just that he's a little bit funny looking. He's not even bad looking. Like, he's very charismatic. I have to be honest here. I'm like a step removed from Ed Sheeran. I went to university with people who were friends with him before he blew up. They all said that he was just like gobsmackingly charismatic. Before he was famous, anything. He was just like the guy in their friend group who everyone would look at whenever he entered the room. You can see that when he's performing stadium shows and he's the only person on stage with his looper, which is an incredible thing to do if you just think about it. In the world where Beyonce is on our Twitter feed dancing around with massive pneumatic robots in order to try and fill up that space, make it so that people right at the back can have that authentic connection with her. Ed Sheeran doesn't need any of that. That's crazy. He draws upon Bob Dylan, he draws upon a lot of those first generation of folk artists and he's also a big take that fan and that's melded in a personality that can hold a stadium in the palm of his hand the choir that comes in is very much a kind of 80s world music choir that you could hear on mm. paul simon who also was like a massive pop crossover artist very soothing vocal from paul as well actually paul doesn't want to uh, change the world through abrasive music he's not going to make metal machine music um the music video is rather interesting as well because there's a level of humor to its central metaphor that is completely missing from the other videos here it seems like a video that's about depression because it opens with a post-suicide sheeran who's apparently driven his car off the bridge much like the stan he is But we never actually get to that in the video. The ending of it shows Sheeran walking away from the jetty um, as if he's sort of put this out of his mind. But the whole of the video, he's being followed around by this cute, fuzzy monster. It's CGI, but it's supposed to look like a guy in a monster costume. And it's, it's like mm -hmm. depression personified as an old friend which is actually rather a beautiful image. It's a more complicated emotion that he's reaching for here. The other two Sheeranoids were just reaching for the aesthetics of heightened emotion. It's an immature position to consider that uh, you can express the deepest hurt without the 
tendon opposite. We've spoken about this in the past, about um, how playfulness and creativity makes depth to the deepness. Um, I do really like the video. I think it's nice. I love the way that these things are represented physically and it draws back to your Paul Simon point. Hello, darkness, my <laughs> old friend, isn't it? He's being followed around by that. Yeah. And again, even if you just listen to the sound of this record, you notice he's doing something that his knockoffs never do, which is he's actually messing around with his meter. You go from that first thing where he's using a kind of um, slightly lilting Spanish kind of rhythm that you would find in a lot of tropical house-influenced pop. Been inside for most this year. And I thought a few drinks they might have. And he goes into this more kind of intense flow, which is a little bit more reminiscent of hip hop. Step in the bar, it hit me so hard. Or how can it be this heavy? And it heightens the emotion. There's a there's a beautiful sense of progression. Different things are revealed throughout the song. He waits until the last line of the first verse to reveal that the person who the song is to is not actually there. Feel the lump form in my throat. Some here alone. If you find out about the way that his friend passed, which is an arrhythmia after a night of cocaine, I actually thought the first verse was written from the friend's perspective, which is a possible interpretation that may have been on Sheeran's mind. No, it's a bad idea, but how can I help myself? Been inside for most this year. And I thought a few drinks they might help. <laughs> so yeah, it's not a song that is going to go on my forever playlist, as we call it. But it is a really good reminder of just how good Ed Sheeran is at his job. And honestly, like, just give it a rest. Hating him is way cornier than liking him at this point. I mean, I kind of <laughs> had to deal with this because... At my job, I remember my co-workers were talking about Ed Sheeran and I just come in all cool like, oh, Ed Sheeran. And they all get really mad at me. Like, how could you hate that guy? I saw him at the Manchester Arena. He had the whole audience just wrapped, just using his loop pedal. He was brilliant. And then I realized I didn't actually have any reason to hate Ed Sheeran. I just kind of caught that because I was following everyone else's opinion who I thought was in the tribe that I belonged to. And that was actually like a formative moment I don't actually want to be like these people I would rather have respect for people who bring joy into the world yeah I, I want that and I'm very cool so you must be cool thank as you well. we're both cool <laughs> in our sheeran off I'm going to be sticking with the authentic product I'm going to be checking the label for the little holographic sticker nobody else can even really compete with that level of technology so next on our list is React by Ella Henderson <laughs> and a bunch of other people. Switch Disco and Robert Miles, who we brought up in yeah. our last episode. We talked about how much the Ellie Golding song with Calvin Harris was an obvious knockoff. I assume yeah. Switch Disco figured out pretty quickly that this meant that there was room for an actual brazen sampling of children. Yeah. So here's React. Every time that you touch me, my body reacts, reacts, reacts. My body reacts, reacts, reacts. Yeah, this kind of thing reminds me of when... Fatboy Slim, as Beats International put out, dub be good to me. And Paul Simon of the Clash said, that's clearly my bass riff from Guns of Brixton there, what are you doing? Norman Cook 
said, oh, no, I stole that from an old star record. And then the money was settled. But the fact that that had gone out, it made Simon think, yeah, let's put out some remixes of Duns of Brixton now. So I assume that they've gone to the real thing. You know, Robert Miles' children, which I learned from you, was invented to try and stop people murdering each other in cars <laughs> after being fucked up all night. Which, you know, you don't get that from the, the no. at all. You really don't um, hear that. The music video, I think, gives a very good idea of what this song is actually for. It shows a bunch of happy multicultural friends doing a lot of parkour with a lot of close-up videos of them in black and white. Um, as they do muscle things and jiggle up and down on treadmills. And really, it's just been turned into a gym bop. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you would have on the speakers at the YMCA when you are neck deep into a squat set. Yeah, and I think this is a better song than Miracle. I think it benefits from the actual sample with that heart-stoppingly, recognisably clear, cheap piano sound. I hope I'm going to impress you now. Namely, the Kurzweil K2000. Like, that track sounds like shards of ice falling down on an alpine mm. landscape. And that's a decent oral hook to hang a modern dance track around. Yeah, the homage is both, like, incredibly obvious and reasonably recontextualized enough to turn it into a different song. Like we both agreed, the emotion is completely different. There isn't any of that kind of spirituality that we get from the original children. It's just a club thump. I don't really have anything particularly interesting to say about it, though. Yeah, no, I suppose the last thing I'll say is the fact that this and Miracle are out, it reminds me of the twin movie phenomenon mm. where you get two films out at the same time about a volcano or the president's daughter missing. Or talking CGI fish. Exactly. It's just a Robert Miles' children talking CGI fish to <laughs> Yeah, apparently. Do you think we're going to see more 90s house genres getting resurrected? I certainly hope so. I mean, this is a major resurgence of the 90s just now. If you want to look cool then put on a dance video from 1996 and just copy their fashions remotely. You will be king of your high street. So, yeah, I'm not putting anything from the 90s. I think we're going to see Mr Blobby return. <laughs> Don't. We're going to the 90s next episode. I think even as we speak, a single pink finger is starting to poke through the earth of a well-forgotten grave. We do actually have a bit of a chart record happening this week. Yes, it's signed. This is the highest charting Korean girl group song in the UK. Cupid by 5050. K-pop is kind of caricatured in general pop music discourse because basically in South Korea the argument about authenticity that was had about rock music in America never happened. So there is like an aggressive plasticiness to Korean pop music which is part of the selling point. You can watch videos of these people rehearsing in giant hangars. They're all part of the mega mainstream entertainment complex and so a lot of how you enjoy girl groups and boy groups is you see them messing around on light entertainment TV shows and game shows and things like that. They have to be funny people and good all-round entertainers as well as work really really 
really hard on elaborate dance routines which emphasise the idea of the band working together as a unit. A lot of coverage of it in the West being based on this slightly racist model of, oh, they're all beautiful and completely interchangeable people who just dance around for their puppet master's bidding. It's very like 2000s Britney Spears discourse and kind of embarrassing to see it coming back. Incidentally, this group, 5050, were very influenced by Britney Spears. They actually sing the lyric, Oops, I Did It Again, in one of their other big songs. Yeah, you can hear that. Cupid by 5050. Only K-pop can save us. I was When this came on after what had come before this chart with its ups and downs, I was like, hooray, a great melody. And I think that it's plasticity. I think to the fact that it's not at all concerned about authenticity, I think the fact that this music, and this is me entirely doing some psychoanalysis based on a nation that I've got no foundation to back up with, but if you look over a border, much like the uh, East Germans did to West Germany and vice versa, and you can see far more blatant form of oppression occurring within your eyeline, I think you're going to care less about that stuff and you're going to be more interested in an immediate good time. And that's what this song and a lot of K-pop offers. This is only the second um, female K-pop uh, song to crack the top 40 after Blackpink um, and how you got Yeah, that. and Blackpink, incidentally, um, did that because they had a feature from a Western pop star. Their highest charting song was Sour Candy, which reached number 17 in the UK charts with the assistance of Lady Gaga. I'm hot on the outside, but if you see inside, inside, inside... Their previous attempts to team up with Western pop stars like Selena Gomez and Dua Lipa did not get them in the top 20. It seems like we've actually reached a bit of a critical point in terms of how we deal with K-pop, which is that for a long time, Western radio stations haven't wanted to play pop music with non-English lyrics. That stigma has started to break down. I think one of the big turning points was actually the success of Despacito. Despacito. Which did have Justin Bieber attached to sell it, but has opened the door for non-English language pop in a big way. And to be fair, though, Cupid is about, uh, I'm going to say it, 50-50 in English. It uses code switching in this very melodic way, which is that English words are used to form the rhymes. Um, which are, of course, the part that is most musical. And the rest of it, it doesn't really matter if there's bits in between. Um, Unfortunately, my notes for this song are just a list of other songs that it reminds me of, so I don't know how useful I can be. I think, like, the obvious reference point here is Say So by Doja Cat. In which she is singing in English and is not very comprehensible yeah the fact that this is mostly or 50 percent in korean it isn't 
an impact because if you're listening to something from the radio, even if you're walking around town and hearing it in your earbuds, you don't listen to all of the words as a song listener and you're fooling yourself if you think you are. I do want to just briefly say that I appreciate Blackpink's attempt to crack the top 10 by increasingly going up the pop hierarchy as if trying to speak to the previous one's manager. Yeah, they'll have Madonna next. 50-50 sing Cupid extremely well it's as if it's been done by a melancholy ghost and the song has these lovely bass lines it's beautifully produced and just appealing to the part of my brain that is forever a nine-year-old boy the backing vocals remind me of cartoon network at the turn of the millennium which i really really liked the song is about and they've got english subtitles on the video that you can bring up on youtube it's about giving cupid another chance because you fell in love with the boy and he broke your heart again oh no <laughs> it really doesn't go very deep or very clever it's not intended to but it's something that you no. can understand intuitively by just how swoony and yeah. beautiful it is with this this lovely little disco groove going on i think my only problem with this is the key change that the truck driver's gear change as a songwriter you'd hate that <sighs> the truck driver's gear change is one of those things that people who are music snobs hate again because it was something that was just all over the pop charts at one time and it's associated with a certain kind of light entertainment pop that doesn't have Downtown. any kind of prestige attached to it, you know? But I find the one here just like very horrible on its own terms. There isn't any sense of ramping up to it. The song just kind of crashes a semitone higher and it just makes my whole body go, Ugh. It doesn't really escalate the stakes or anything. I'd rather they added some more percussion or or maybe have like some rap vocals going on in the back of that final chorus or something. But yeah. Oh, I really wanted to accuse you of being a snob for not liking that gear change, but I can't quite do it. Um, it's self-aware. In the music video, that's even the moment where they do the dance break on the big stage, bringing yeah. it back to that idea of the show tune, which is where the semitone up key change came from. It's a hyper-capitalistic song, and I liked that it's unapologetic about that fact. I really can't argue with this song's fizzy vitality it's like drinking some boba tea 50-50 <laughs> they do have a concept and the 50-50 brand is supposed to reflect the idea of them being girls who are in the real world and half in a fantasy world and I think this song does reflect that because it, it's simultaneously total commercial glitzy fluff while also being about a very relatable genuine emotion the girls are really funny watching them clown around in the video and the way they ping off each other there's a rap verse. There's a lot to love here. There really is. And that's the top five of the ones that we've yet to cover so far. Yes. So what we did this week was I decided to give James the Orcs and he is going to choose the two other songs that we're going to discuss this week. So... The next one up the chart that really catches my ear is If We Ever Broke Up by Mae Stevens. If we ever broke up, I'll never be sad. Think about everything I thought we had. If we ever broke up. If we ever broke up. 
Much like K-pop is pointing the way forward, this also seems to point towards the future. It feels fresh, but it still has a very British intent. The same sort of thing that the landfill indie that we were reared on. And May is a genre of young woman I haven't seen much on the TV, but it's very much out there. She's riding our buses <laughs> and she's working in our sports shops before she starts the next chapter of her yeah. lives. And I'm really cool with pop music like this coming from people such as May Stevens. The closest thing I can think of to seeing a pop singer who looks like her is in fact Netta, the Eurovision Song Contest winner for Israel a few years back. <laughs> I'm not your toy. But Netta still looks very slick and commercial compared to Mae Stevens, who looks like someone who could be mm. my mate, you know? Exactly that. Yeah, she looks like someone that you could have a really good laugh with and regret drinking too much blue WKD in the morning. <laughs> the lyrics here are actually funny. I think British mm. artists are a bit more relaxed about being funny than American artists outside of the genres of hip-hop and country. My friend, the music critic David Moore, said to me that in American pop music, they have embarrassment, but they have no shame. In British pop music, we have shame, but we have no embarrassment. We're much more willing to make novelty songs big hits. We're much more willing to embrace slightly cringy artists like Ed Sheeran. And we're willing to write funny songs like If We Ever Broke Up. It's in the same Sonic Universe as yeah. Red Flags by Mimi and that one with Amory and H. Yeah, yeah. The best line here, and it's delivered superbly, is If we ever broke up, I'd call your dad and tell him all the shittiest of things you said if we ever broke up. Which is a real tactic you should do that <laughs> i don't recommend doing that personally <laughs> <laughs> right on may stevens oh, i'm really looking forward to seeing what she does next and the other one we got is scrap the monarchy by the crown jewels scrap the monarchy scrap the monarchy Yeah, the I... cunts um, renamed themselves the Crown Jewels for obvious reasons. I really don't approve of this anymore. I feel like concerted efforts to get message songs to chart, particularly ones of subsur subversive and establishment undertone, I really think we should be past that as a mm. nation now. I'm tired of us doing this. I think that particular battle was won. The highlight of that was when Rage Against the Machine ended up being Christmas number one as a sort of yes. um, rockist reaction to Simon Cowell. Which was yeah. arranged through Facebook and was funny and also killing in the name of absolutely slaps. It's terrific. Yeah. After that, things started to get a bit dodgier. The Crown Jewels, in their previous name as the Cunts with a K, tried to promote a song called Boris Johnson as a fucking cunt, which was basically a droning museum piece punk rock riff going on, singing Boris Johnson is a fucking cunt over and over again for about the minimum length of time that as something needs to be legally considered a stream on Spotify. Johnson is a fucking cunt. He's a fucking cunt. Yes, he's a fucking cunt. 
I did actually support it because I thought it was funny at the time. It soon soured for me, especially because they were blatantly attempting to copy the Rage Against the Machine thing, down to hiring the same social media manager who then started posting his incredibly cringe political opinions on Maine, which caused it to start sinking in the charts very quickly. Um, it was also designed to compete against Lad Baby. Don't get me wrong, Lad Baby's songs are, like, awful. They are novelty songs that are themed around sausage rolls, and we've had him be Christmas number one consecutively for many years. Recently, assisted by friends of the show Ed Sheeran and Elton John, an enemy of the show. Wishing that Christmas was here to stay The last one was lovely, so I'm glad that it's come again It won't be the same, the and loved ones have passed away We miss them every day Let's pray Merry Christmas Which helped get them both even higher on their number ones records list Which will be our topic for the next season, incidentally But the thing is, the cunts were doing it for personal enrichment I mean, I guess they told us that they were cunts. You know, Lad Baby was doing it to raise money for a food bank. Even if he himself was made a millionaire off the back of those songs, he was actually doing more for the world than the cunts who were just whining about him because he was uncool. Of course, yeah. if they're doing that, they're going to sound like aging punks. I will say, Cunt and the Gang, he first got famous doing stuff on MySpace in like 2003. He was known for being a Basildon legend who, if you actually sent him a comment on MySpace, he would show up and perform at your birthday party or whatever for free. I have a strong recollection of my good friend Richard Brooks sending me a video clip of him doing a song called The Sexy Kids in the wake of the Operation U-Tree scandal um, in which the ghost of Jimmy Savile compels Cunt to write a song explaining that it wasn't his fault that he molested all those kids. All my good work will now be forgot because of my penchant for underage mock. He said, surely those marathons and charity races offset my spunking on teenagers' faces. It is one of the most offensive things ever, and that's why it's not on YouTube. The thing is, you saw this definite change in his comedic stylings after Operation U-Tree. Before that, he was just doing the same sort of cock-piss-wanker humour. So I unzip my fly and pop out my Jap's eye. I have a little wank and I have a little cry. I'm wanking over a pornographic Polaroid of an ex-girlfriend who died. That we've already briefly touched on in the show with people like Judge Dredd. But after Operation U-Tree, a lot more of his songs started to centre around this outrage at paedophilia. You've got the wrong Ian Watkins, mate. Is that what made me smile? You've just called the bloke from Steps a twisted paedophile. He shares a name and was in a band. Similarity ends there. He'd never fuck a baby. Just ask Lee, Lisa, Faye and Claire. While obviously we're not big fans of child molestation on the show, so at least. there is an element to which the rage about paedophilia is always something that you see more on the far right. In some ways, it is this kind of unifying factor between punks and absolute fascists that tends to lead to gammon punks and people who were punks in the 70s but are now just fully Brexit. Nationalised spoons and the yes. I agree with the basic political sentiments of this song. I don't think we should have a monarchy. It's time for this to stop. 
Let's give the Royals the chance. I don't think we should be spending money on a coronation during a cost of living crisis in which people are going hungry and unable to feed their kids. Why one family living palaces all subsidised by us while folks rely on food banks? I think the royal family have really good PR and protect members of the firm who have been abusing their power to hurt people. Look past their PR, you'll see what they really are. Which is all addressed in the song. But the result is it ends up feeling much more reactionary than a genuinely radical statement like abolishing the monarchy should be. Because it does end up collapsing everything into nonce panic. His best friend was Jimmy Savile, Britain's foremost child molester. And his brother, Prince Andrew, he's a nonce case too. Scrap the monarchy. And in taking things down to the lowest common denominator, they're making this seem so dreadfully establishment. This could appear on a Have I Got News For You episode in a clip, and Ian Hislop would make his face. It's inside the realms of accepted discussion because it's so flagrantly a joke. Um... And it's also through the cynical manipulation of personal enrichment and timing and placement and that sort of thing and a astroturfed campaign to build success for the point of success, it seems a lot less cool than Ed mm. Sheeran. You would, you would not like it if you, at age 15, were told that you would prefer a, a cynically commercial pop song by a girl group to a punk song about getting rid of the monarchy most definitely yeah i would have gone back to my compass and started playing that game where you try not to stab your own <laughs> finger how rebellious was i foul is fair and fair is foul you know it's just not succeeding at what it wants to be or is it you know i think it just wants to be a cynical song on the charts and congratulations you've done it most of its talking points are things that are designed to appeal to far right bores as well as far left bores yeah. like us is part of how it is expecting to have mass appeal it's like it's positioned as um, being one thing we can all agree on. A cunt isn't a fascist or like a far-right bore or whatever, but he's clearly pitching his arguments at the level at which someone who is a fascist or a far-right bore could be expected to agree with them, which is on the level of hanging all the pedos. It feels very empty and cynical. Gosh, I imagine modern-day Morrissey could re-record Panic and have the chorus be hang the pedos, hang the pedos. He could, he would actually do that, yeah, bastard. In fact, even yeah. the video seems to evoke the 118 adverts that were very popular to make fun of about 15 years ago. Who are you gonna call? Or even yeah. um, the ugly spectre of Is This the Way to Amarillo with Tony Christie <laughs> lip synced along to Peter Kay in that video. For those of you who are American, this was an omnipresent charity song that was popular. Was it like 2006? It was around that time. Which would, yeah. would have been around the time that Cunt was first getting famous on MySpace, you know? These are still his reference points. And he very wittily has his number being uh, in the London Marathon 00069, a number that internet dweebs have now 
exclusively made incredibly unfunny. When Elon Musk is making jokes about something, it's dead. Sorry. The nice things I am going to say about it is that I do think there is some value in pop stars challenging freedom of speech for the sake of it. Right down from the BBC banning George Formby from performing with a little stick of Blackpool rock. It may be sticky, but I never complain. It's nice to have a nibble at it now and again. The BBC has always taken a lot of delight in attempting to improve the moral character of the nation through censoring songs, but also getting rid of political statements, especially ones that are to the left. This is one of the yeah. things that you notice if you're actually truly committed to freedom of speech and not just committed to it insofar as it allows you to say racist stuff online without getting banned, you will notice that a lot of censorship are just there to prevent people speaking out against the far right. This is a song where much of the point of doing it is in testing the system by putting it out there and seeing how the fuckers respond to it which is something that I do have respect for. The official charts refused to name the song on air. When they did the chart show on Radio 1, they named it, but they refused to play the song, which is how they've done previous things where people attempted to hack yeah. the charts. And since this is at a time when the public order bill makes it criminal to protest in any way that causes an inconvenience to anybody else, where cops were arresting people on carrying rape alarms, when they'd been given rape alarms by feminist campaigners after the Met Police have been caught in a rape scandal themselves, um, covering up abuse of women. This idea of just shutting down any dissent, um, shutting down protests of people peacefully holding signs, all of this was going on at the same time. And I think it is worth demonstrating just how weak the establishment is in that they want to censor a pathetic little song like this by a guy who peaked during the MySpace era. Yeah, we're dealing with an establishment that's so pathetically fearful that it won't even allow dissent to the extent that this expresses mm. it. And yeah, for that reason, it's good to have an opposing opinion out there. Furthermore, I think the verses are quite musically vibrant as well, though the chorus uh, offers nothing. It's infinitely better than Boris Johnson is a fucking cunt and Prince Andrew is a sweaty nonce. It's very, very rare that propaganda is moving as art. It hardly ever happens. What's your pick of the week, Holly? What's your favourite song? <sighs> I'm going to have to go with Cupid by 5050. I think on a pure enjoyment level, that is the one that I went back to again and again and again. And But if we're actually talking about the quality of the song, Ed Sheeran wins. I think that I would have to say exactly the same. I think Ed Sheeran's song is the best written and possibly the best performed, actually. Mm. But Cupid is my favourite record <laughs> of the week. So that's the one I'm putting the crown on. We'll put Cupid on our Pick of the Week playlist. That's it. It's been a good week. It's been a lovely chat. And uh, as ever, as I always like to say, we love to grow the show. So I let people know exactly what we're up to and why they should check us in. And next time, very excitingly, for the first time ever, our travels back in time are going to Quantum Leap style crossover with our own timelines. <laughs> we're going to the 1990s, baby. So get your silver reflective trousers on, pull on a crop top and get ready to put a bindi yeah. in your forehead because we are there. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye. If it takes forever, I will wait 
Beside me 